Today's scripture is Romans 9, verses 9 through 13. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you all. Good to be back preaching and teaching. Uh, Not necessarily excited to be back preaching Romans 9, but nevertheless, uh, here to be with you guys. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We are going to be teaching through Romans, uh, Romans 9 today, and so if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn there? We don't have... Um, I have a lot to say and not a whole lot of time, and so we're going to just jump in. Romans chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand and keep it raised really high <clears throat> so someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy we're handing out. It is our gift to you uh, to read through, to study, and to know and grow and understand who God is. Um, one thing, next week is going to be Outward Focus Sunday, and every first Sunday of the month we have that, and we also have our M25 ministry. And M25 is taken from Matthew 25 where we see Jesus telling us to feed the hungry. Um, and then when we care for them, it's like caring for him. And so from that, we uh, would partner with an organization and ministry here in Tempe called Rio Vista Center. Most of you are familiar with them. And they provide resources and help for homeless people here in our city. And so the way we partner with them in one area is that we gather in food for them. And so last month, we gave you guys out a sheet with the list of items. You guys brought those items in. And so we asked them, what do you guys need for this month? And they said, we need one thing. So we're not handing you out sheets today. They need one thing. So you got to listen. Next week, you're going to bring one thing. That one item is peanut butter. Uh, I, have no, I have no, a lot of crackers, I say, but not a lot of peanut butter, all right? So they, they need peanut butter, okay? So what are we bringing next week? Peanut butter. It doesn't matter if it's Jiffy, if it's Skippy, if it's organic, if it's almond butter, if it's, you know, nut-free butter. I have no idea, right? Just bring the peanut butter. I promise that whoever receives this peanut butter are going to be like, thank you, okay? Just bring it. Here's the other thing, and I know you guys laugh when I say this, but don't bring peanut butter that you already used, all right? You'd be surprised at what people bring here. And it's like, no, 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 no. Get new peanut butter that hasn't been opened uh, and so they can have peanut butter, okay? There'll be trash cans laid out when you show up um, next week and you can just drop those peanut butter uh, containers in the trash can. So that was the easiest thing that I'm going to say over the next 40 minutes, all right? Romans chapter 9. So here's what we we were at. We're in Romans chapter 9 and just a quick recap of Romans chapter 8, which I said was my most favorite chapter in, in the whole Bible. Um, And it's just a beautiful chapter of celebration. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That there will be a bodily resurrection for those who trust in Christ. That we've been adopted into the family of God and nothing could separate that. And the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And no matter what suffering we go through, that God himself is going to work all things out for the good. And then what Justin closed on last week is that there's nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, And then now we get to Romans chapter 9. And Romans chapter 9, I believe, is Paul um, being able to lay out why he's so confident about the things that he spoke about in Romans chapter 8. How could he speak so confidently about our relationship with God being so secured? And, and, And here's what Paul lays out, is that a Christian, those who trust in Jesus, those who follow Christ, who believe in his death on their behalf and his resurrected life, a Christian... 
um, has a relationship with God, and that relationship with God is initiated and secured by God's sovereign love. The relationship that the Christian has with God is secured. It's initiated and secured solely or only by God's sovereign love. And Paul begins to unpack uh, some of the hardest theology that you're going to read in the entire Bible. And the reason why I say it's hard is because many men and women for centuries have been wrestling and stumbling and arguing over this particular chapter for years. But today, um, I'm going to do such a good job, none of you guys are even going to argue, right? No, not at all, not at all. We've already done it one service, I'm already sweating, all right? The reason why I even wore this today is because if I have to preach this, I'm going to try to look good doing it. So, um, so let me give some disclaimers before we jump into the text. First is this, there are going to be some things that some of you or many of you will hear or read today that will raise a lot of questions. And you know what? That's totally okay. Um, and what we're going to be able to do, at first what I want to be able to do is say, if you have any questions, objections, you're angry, you can email me at Jason Raber at Redemption. <laughs> no. If you, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> all your questions um, can go here to redemptiontempequestions at gmail.com. And so here's what I'm going to do. Similar to what we did in Romans chapter 1, if you guys can recall that six years ago, we, 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 when we taught through homosexuality, I taught through week one what the text said, came back, talked a little bit, and then I took all you guys' questions and answered about five or six of them. I want to take about five, six, seven, eight of, of your questions, or at least most objections, and then teach next week, and then leave some time at the end of the sermon uh, to be able to answer some of those questions. Because personally, myself, this is something that I wrestled with for a while before I got it, and I, I was thankful for the opportunity to be able to ask a question. So um, that's going to be here, and if you forget that, you, you can um, email us or call us at the office, and we'll be able to get you that, that, um, that email address. The second disclaimer is not only are you going to have questions, but there may be some of you um, that are confused that are angry and that are mad, or all three at the same time. And I say that because that happens. That's just the reality. And so the thing that I'm asking of you, those of you in this room who are followers of Christ, is that, that you wrestle with the Scripture. That what we're talking about this morning is not the end of the conversation. It's not a, you don't get this, you're done. It's the beginning of a conversation to say, I have to wrestle with this. Most of the people that I know that hold the particular teaching that Paul is teaching here would say, I wholeheartedly hold that and I would never teach it. M mentors, people who I love, and I said, why? Oh, we just wouldn't do it. It's too controversial. But here's the, here's the thing that we have as redemption. In many other churches, we're not the only one, we preach through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible, it forces us to read and say and teach things that we would normally skip over, Right? We would normally, I would take Romans 9, I'd cut it out, and God would be mad at me, but I would just cut it. We can't do that. We have to teach in the same way that we had to deal with wrath in chapter 1 and judgment. We dealt with homosexuality. Well, today we have to deal with this word called election. And this word called election has nothing to do with our political system, um, but it's called election. And so that's what we're going to be at today. And so what I want to be able to do, I'm going to pray and we're going to look at verses 1 through 18. I hope to get all the way through 18. I was able to do it last hour. I think I should be able to do it this hour. And we're just going to walk through the scripture. It is not my desire to teach this systematically. Um, some of you have been around this and you want to go, well, go to this first and go to this first. We're just going to walk through the text because I want to be consistent to what Paul has already been saying so that we can build upon his argument. And I want you to read your Bible and realize this is not me saying this. This is what the scripture teaches. And we'll all wrestle with it. Cool? All right, let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much. I thank you for the word of God. God, there are so many things in scripture that we are just, we, it just makes sense to us. And then there's certain things, Lord, that it doesn't make sense to us. But we're most thankful for Jesus. So we start in his name. God, we continue in his name. And as we end today in his name, as we leave here in his name, in his power, God, we thank you that you are absolutely sovereign and good. We don't know all that you've done and all that you're doing. You're not fully comprehensible, and yet you allow us to understand you. There are things of you and big things of you that we can know. And so as we enter to the word today, God, may your spirit anoint us, anoint our time, bless our time. May it be worshipful, God. And the things, Lord, that are true, Lord, may them resonate in our hearts and let us wrestle with them, Lord, and understand what it means to follow Jesus into the world in which you've called us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. One of my personal struggles, questions, we, we all have doubts, right? We all have questions, whether you believe in Jesus or not. We always have doubts, questions, thoughts, whatever they may be. Sometimes they're suffering. Sometimes they're highly intellectual. Sometimes they're experiential, but we have them. And it doesn't go away sometimes. The question that I wrestled with the first couple years when I started walking with Jesus was, why did God save me and not save the people around me? Um, meaning my friends, my people, my boys, my homies, my dogs, right? These, 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 everything I would have said and I still say. <laughs> about, like These are my friends. How, how is it that we were all um, going into the same direction, hard and fast, away from God, doing our thing? In fact, no joke, if there was a leader, I was the leader. I was like, come on, faster, right? And then for whatever reason, wasn't in a church service, God himself says, I'm going to open up your eyes to see something. And for the first time in my life, I was able to see the good news of Jesus. And I became an immediate evangelist. Like, immediate, like I prayed, amen, hey, let's get it, right? And I tried to save my friends, and I'm sharing the gospel, and I'm that very, very annoying guy just saying, hey, uh, I mean, everything led to Jesus. Hey, you're drinking a Coke? Let me just tell you something about Jesus. Right? I was like that guy. Like I, I wanted everyone to know Jesus and to no avail, right? No one's believing in Jesus, and I'm just saying, well, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. One person came to know the Lord. One of my friends who moved from California, moved into it with me our senior year before I became a Christian, and um, he had some drug issues back at home, and he moved into our house. He said, hey, can I live with you guys? And I said, sure. Um, and, and sure enough, after I became a Christian, about a year later, he became a Christian. And, and, and then I asked him, why did you even move to Arizona? It's a crazy story. He said, when we were 14, 13 years old, 13, 14 years old, because we grew up together back in California, he said, I remember you saying, at some point in your life, you were going to get things right with God. And I did a lot of stupid stuff in high school and in college, and I'm like, I think that was some stupid stuff I was doing when I said that, because I don't remember at all ever saying that. Are you sure? Right? And he says, for whatever reason, and I moved here, and I had no idea what that was going to look like, but then somehow when you start going to church, and I wasn't even, this is the sad thing about it, I had never shared the gospel with him. I was sharing that everybody else except for this one guy who had, I moved out of our house, and I was living with him, and then one day he says, hey, can I go to church with you today? And I was like... Oh, yeah, sure, right? And he came and he believed in Jesus, and it was amazing. And that was the one friend to this day, although um, God is moving and working in some people's lives right now, which is incredible. But to this day, so far, that's the one out of all the people that I kicked it with. And it bothered me, and it bothered me greatly. You have that experience with some of your friends, with some of your family members, that you're just going, God, would you open up their eyes to see you? 
Some of you have children who are my age that don't walk with Jesus, and you're going, I want, I raised them in the word, I raised them in the church, but they don't walk with Jesus. There's that anguish there. Paul begins to talk about his anguish for the same thing. And in doing so, he builds an argument to say, let me tell you what God is doing upstream or behind the scenes. And by upstream, meaning before we even get into the picture, before we even enter into the narrative, what God is doing. And what he does, so that you can understand the context, is so far in this letter, Paul is writing to the Roman church, there's Jewish people and there's Gentiles. Those are non-ethnic Jews. In Romans 9 and 10 and 11, especially in the beginning of Romans 9, Paul begins to gear in and talk towards Jewish people. Now, he knows that there's a Gentile audience, but primarily Jewish people who understood the Old Testament. And so that's the context that we have here, and let's, let's look at verses 1 through 5 first. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Paul's saying, I feel, I have anguish that my people don't know Jesus. Like there's a reality what Paul is saying is my people don't know Jesus, and I feel anguish over that. Like, these are my family. These are my boys. He says, these are my homies. These are my dogs, right? That's a new Greek language translation when he says that. But he says, these are my people. These are my people. And then he goes on to say something that is incredible. He goes, I wish I were a, I were a curse and cut off from Christ. What Paul is saying is when he says a curse, that word is anathema. It means I wish I were damned by God. Like, I was set apart that I would never know Christ, that if I were removed, if somehow they would be gathered in. He's serious about it. His heart for people who don't know Jesus is serious. And he says, but if anybody should have been, if, if anybody should have been able to get it, it should have been them. Because they had the glory. They had the covenants. They had the promise. Theirs was the adoption. They had the worship. And even from their own lineage, from their own race, that when Jesus' earthly line the lineage in which he came from, the Messiah, it came from the Jewish people. Salvation is from the Jewish people. He said, if anybody could have been saved off experience, they would have been it. If anybody could have been saved off good biblical teaching alone, they would have been it. If anybody could have been saved by being, quote, unquote, raised in the church or in a godly home, it would have been them. They had all of these things and all of these blessings, and yet many of them don't know Jesus. What Paul is beginning to lay out for us is something that if we can get, we will be able to not only interpret Romans 9, but be able to understand the Bible. And that is a simple truth, that when it, it's more than a simple truth, it's a profound truth, that when it comes to the relationship of we have with God and his, and his love, that that relationship, again, is initiated upstream and continued downstream all the way into eternity by God's sovereign love by his sovereign grace, that is his unmerited favor in which God lavishes his love upon us in spite of us. 
That's not to neglect our experiences. That's not to neglect our upbringing. That's not to neglect. It's not to say that good teaching and a good church isn't needed. It totally is, and we're going to deal with that in a bit. But he's saying, but what matters most is that it's not about you. It's about God. It is not up to you. It is up to God. The Israelites knew their narrative more than we know it. I mean, what I mean is they knew the Old Testament. They they knew their stories. They knew God had said things. They knew God had promised things. They knew all of the stories that Paul is about to unpack for us. But many of them didn't and could not see that it all pointed to Jesus. They knew all of these things, and yet they have not trusted and had their faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying it's because they thought it was about race when it was always about grace. They thought it was about works, what they could do according to God's law, but it was always by faith. They thought it was about them, and it was always about God. It's always about God. Um, It's not that we don't matter. We totally matter. But first and foremost, the world is about God. The Bible is about God. Salvation is about God. It's about his initiative and what he does. His love that we receive is about God. If we could just get that, that it's not about you, but it's about God, then we'll be able to unpack the Bible. We'll be able to understand what Romans is saying, and we'll be able to understand Paul's argument. And so here's what Paul begins to do now in talking to this Jewish people. Because they knew their story, they knew that God promised something. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God called the man. Named Abram, he changed his name to Abraham. And many of you guys know Father Abraham. You know he had many sons. Many of you are one of them. So am I. Me too. We're all, we get it, right? <laughs> Most of you laugh because you grew up in a VBS or vacation Bible school. Those of you who didn't laugh, consider yourself blessed, all right? <laughs> Abraham, Abraham himself was chosen by God, not because he was a great guy. Abraham was a pagan who believed in multiple gods who did not worship God. God initiated a relationship with him and began to start a long plan of redemption of which he was going to redeem the world. That God decided in his own sovereign plan that the way that he was going to redeem this world was that he was going to work through humanity. And so he chose Abraham, and he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, go back and read it later, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family. And I'm going to bless other nations who bless you. And those who bless you, I'm going to keep blessing. And those who curse you, I'm going to curse them. But I'm going to redeem the world, and I'm going to sovereignly work through your family, which became the Israelites. And so the Israelites, again, interpret that as every single person who was a descendant from Abraham is going to be saved because they're Jewish people. But it wasn't about race. Again, it was about grace, God's unmerited favor. And it wasn't only for the Israelites They failed to read 2 and 3, which said it was the other nations. It was the world as well. Well, what Paul is doing here is Paul is going back and saying that was the gospel. And we we knew why that was a gospel because in Galatians chapter 4, when Paul talks about this, he says the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. And that was God's sovereign working and moving throughout the world through Abraham's family. And so his original listeners would have said, okay, you just made an awesome promise that God made. And that is nothing will separate us from the love of God. But if you're a Jewish person in there and you're going, you're looking around in the church and you're going, not everybody I know who's Jewish is in here. And there are people in here who are not Jewish. Um, God also promised that all, they thought all the Israelites would be saved, but they're not all saved. So how do we know that promise is going to be true? Does the word of God fail? And Paul begins to say, wait a minute, let's look at the word of God. And so most of what we learn from today comes back from God's word, right? And we're going to walk through those stories together. Verse 6. But it is not though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who were children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so here's what's happening here. He says, just to let you know, he's talking to Jewish people, um, God did make a promise that he was going to save Israel as well as the rest of the world. He never promised to save all of Israel and every single person in the world. What he did promise, he said, is that he would save the descendants of Abraham. And then Paul says this, there is a difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Ethnic Israel is every single person who was born into the nation of Israel. Every single person who can connect their lineage in some way to Abraham. Um, God never promised to save everyone that was an ethnic Israel. But he says he did promise to save spiritual Israel. And so what he's saying is not everyone who is, is a part of Israel is a part of Israel, which seems confusing. And Paul goes back and says not all who are children of Abraham are true descendants. And then he goes on um, to ex- explain what he's talking about in verse 8. He says, or excuse me, in verse 7, he says, Abraham, um, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. The promise meant those who were called by his word. Those who were made right by his word. It wasn't those who just were born into a family who had good experiences. He says those who by his word, those who by faith, those who by grace, those who, who were called by God. And so it was about God and it wasn't about you. So Paul is starting to build on this argument and saying God began to choose a people. He already chose Abraham, and then now he says, I'm going to choose Isaac. Let's continue in verse 9. For this is what the promise said, the word of God. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Let's pause there there and go back to this story. So Abraham and Sarah, that was his wife, they had no children. Um, Abraham himself did some wild and crazy things for a while, but God continued to bless him. But they had no children. The promise in itself was dependent upon them having children. Um, They got older and older and older. They had no children. So finally, um, Sarah, Abraham's wife, comes to Abraham and says, hey, it's clear I'm barren. I'm not going to be able to have a baby. I'm getting old. How about you sleep with my maidservant, um, Hagar, and then have a kid with her? And then Abraham says, "Um, you want me to sleep with another woman? If you, baby, if you want me to, for you, I will for you, right? And so he does it, right? And, and they have a baby. And God says, I'm not using my redemptive purposes through that baby. You did that on your own. That was your work. That was your plan. That is not my plan. And then he comes to me and says, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come back again, and Sarah's going to have a baby. Now, Abraham's about 100. Sarah's about 80, 85 years old. He says, Sarah's going to have a baby. And you know what Sarah does? She starts laughing, right? She's like, hi, God, you're funny, right? And we, she gets a bad rep for that. Like, oh, she laughed at God. How could you laugh at God? Think about it. If, if, if somebody, <laughs> what 85-year-old woman you know, if you said, hey, you're going to have a baby, wouldn't go, <laughs> oh, I'm done, baby. <laughs> I'm done, right? You would laugh too, right? But what happens is God shows how he works. He sovereignly intervenes. He does what man cannot do, and he creates out of nothing something, and all of a sudden, they have a baby, and his name is Isaac. So the first thing Paul is showing is 
God himself chose Abraham. God himself chose Isaac, not Ishmael, and he began to work through that. Now, some people can go, well, that's because he wanted the nation of Israel, and since Hagar um, wasn't fully Jewish, that's why it mattered. Okay, Paul goes, okay, let's, let's kind of seal that. And he goes to the next family. Here, if you continue to read with me in verse 10. And not only so, so not only Sarah, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Isaac was the child of Abraham and Sarah. Isaac grew up. Um, Isaac grew up and he himself had kids. Um, and what you would have here in here is that Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah, like her mother-in-law, was also barren. Meaning she didn't have the ability to have kids either. But God showed up, and he did a miracle. He sovereignly intervened. He did what man could not do on behalf of man, and he gave them children. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, and here's where it gets a little hard. So I'm just going to read this all the way to through the 13, and just, just listen with me, read with me God's word. And it says, though they were not yet born and had not done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You, you walk through that and you go, I just forgot 11 and I forgot 12. Did I just hear Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? You ever have that experience where you're, you're listening to somebody and they say something like almost so profound in a, in, a, in a weird way that you're like, there's no way they just said that, right? Oh, you've never had that before. Um, so on Friday, I'm doing what I've been doing lately, and that is taking my boys outside and schooling them in basketball. That's not a joke, guys. I am dunking on these dudes. <laughs> We can lower the rim, so I'm dunking on it, throwing the ball at them and everything. I know you're supposed to let your kids win. No, right? They have to earn that. It's going to be years. So anyways, and so I'm out there playing with my boys. And part of it is, too, is my neighbors will drive home and they come play with us. And so the guy across the street comes over and he brings his kids. And his oldest son is about two years older than my oldest son. And his youngest son is about two years older than my youngest son. And his youngest son is a beast. Like, I might become a sports agent just to just be his agent now. I mean, he's, he, he's, a, he's like three and a half, and he's my size, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'm like calling Coach Graham now, like, offer this kid a scholarship. You can go to ASU, all right? Anyways, that, that has nothing to do with Romans 9. And so what happens is I'm talking to the dad, my youngest and his younger talking, and I thought I hear Eli, my two-year-old, say, I'm going to kick your butt. And I'm like, there's just no way he said that. So I keep talking to the dad. And then the kid comes over and he goes, Mr., uh, your son said he's going to kick my butt. And I'm like, there's no way he said that. So, like, if you ever seen my son Eli, Eli's this big, right? <laughs> and, and, I, and I said, Eli, did you say you were going to kick his butt? And he smiles and he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing, right? Now, as a dad, he has said something that I, one, I thought I heard it. I'm like, wait, there's no, no, and there's no way he didn't. He's like, oh, yes, I did, right? And so I have that, that situation where as a dad, my responsibility is I have to deal with that. I got to deal with what he said. In a far bigger way, um, way different. Eli, easy. When God says something we have to deal with, much harder. Eli, he says, you know, I'm going to kick your butt. I say, no, I'm going to kick your butt. Stop it. Easy, right? When it comes to, to, to the scripture, as people who are followers of Jesus, we have to look at God's word and go, um, I have to deal with that. 
Like, I just can't say I'm not going to deal with it. I just can't say I don't believe a God would. I just can't say I don't think the God I believe in would. I can say all those things. However, the God in whom we know happens to reveal himself through the Bible, and here's what the Bible says. That's hard. That's really hard. And so let's go back to verse 11. Let's slowly walk through verse 13, and then we'll walk to the, the next few verses. He says this. Verse 11, though they were not born, speaking of the twins, not yet born, and had done anything, uh, nothing either good or bad, here's why he says, in order that God's purpose and election might continue. Okay, if you underline, if you write things down, I'd put that there and just wrestle with it. In order that God's purpose and election might continue, and here's why, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She said, she was told, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, and Esau I hated. What, what he's saying is God um, intentionally did something. He elected. Paul is saying this is not new theology to, to the church in Rome. This is not new theology to us in redemption. He's saying this is something and the way it's always been. And let me just show you to the Jewish people and your own narrative. God had been doing this the whole time. And there's two views in church history of how God chooses. There's not any faithful Christians who would say that God doesn't choose and God doesn't elect because you can't get away from it. It's everywhere in the Bible. You see the word come up again and again, choose and elect. So all faithful Christians would say God chooses. It just depends on what is the basis of which he chooses. So one particular view says the way God chooses is he looks down the quarters of time and he says, I see you, those of you who at some point would follow and trust in Jesus downstream. So what God does upstream because of what you're going to do downstream is that he chooses you here knowing in response what you're going to do here. So he chooses you in response to what you would do. That's one particular view. The other view is that God upstream, um, in spite of what you would do, good or bad, in spite of the type of person that you would become, sets his saving love upon you. And at some point downstream, you're going to hear the gospel. Someone's going to pray for you. You're going to have to believe. You're going to, have to, you're going to have to repent and believe in Jesus. All the part that we'll get to in a second. But upstream, God did this not in response to what you would do, but according to his purpose, according to his will, according to him. It's not about you, but it's about God. I believe that is what Paul is teaching there. Um, sidebar, if you don't believe that, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. People who don't believe that view, it doesn't mean that they're second-class Christians or they're not going to be in heaven, or if they, if they are, we're going to be in mansions and they're going to be in shacks. I mean, no, right? Not at all. Not at all. There are godly men and women who love Jesus who are on that side. However, I am your pastor, and I have, I have the, the, the call from God and the responsibility to say, um, this is what the scripture teaches. I do not believe that the scripture teaches that. Men and women have been arguing for centuries over that. They will continue to argue over that. But for the sake of what we read here in Romans, it seems that it says that they were not yet born or had done anything good or bad in order. He did this in order that his purpose and election might continue, not because of works. God is saying, I'm removing you from the equation when it comes to my love for you. What that means is, I'm always going to love you. I, I've loved you before there was a you. Before you even believed in me. Check, check, check this out. 
There are some of you in this room who've never trusted in Christ. You have your own issues. You have your own hang-ups before God that even right now you find yourself in rebellion against God. There may come a day when we pray downstream what we do. We pray and share the gospel that you will believe. And what we know is that everyone who trusts, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then what we know for sure is you will always be in his love. The reason why Paul can say at the very end of Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God because he's saying because God had done something upstream and he's always worked this way and he's continuing to work this way before his love. That's good news. That's not even that hard to to get. That's not even the hard thing to swallow. The hard thing to swallow is, is verse 13. For it is written, Jacob I love and Esau I hate it. Um, what Paul is talking about there is when it says love and hate, let's deal with those words. Love is in a saving way, in a covenantal love way, that God chose and he loved the people we just talked about. The hated is not in the capricious, anger, emotional way that I just don't like you. It's in, in a passing over. I'm not choosing. And so here's the hard reality of this teaching is that God himself according to his own grace and his own glory and his own purposes and his own character, decides to set his mercy, love, and grace in a saving way upon some, and we don't know who those some are, an innumerable amount of people, and chooses not to do the same to others. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. God decides to set his saving love upon some, we don't know who they are, an innumerable amount, and then not on others. Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. Now, to be fair, what Paul is quoting there, Jacob, I love and Esau, I hate it, it comes from Malachi. And in Malachi, um, Jacob represents a nation. That's the nation of Israel, the Israelites. And then Esau represents a nation of the Edomites. And God is saying, I'm going to use my, Malachi, he's talking about he's going to use his his redemptive purposes is to work through Israel to be a blessing to the nation, not the Edomites. Um, Here he is talking about, I believe, people as a whole as well as individuals. And he's making it clear, it's not because of what you're, it's not because you were more likely to, it's not because of the family you were raised in. I mean, you look at the people that God chose. Like if you just look at uh, Jacob and Esau, have you ever read that story? Jacob's a jerk. Right? He's like Bernie Madoff before there's Bernie Madoff. Like, he steals his brother's birthright for a cup of soup. Like, he's a player. I mean, it's all of this stuff, right? But God said, it, it, it wasn't because of Jacob. It was because of me. And turn around. Those of you in this room who are Christian, it's not because of you. It is because of your God. Gosh, that should just humble us. We should never look at anybody who does not yet trust in Christ with any contempt, with any pride. We are who we are by the grace of God. God says, I will remove anything you have for grounds of boasting. It is all because of my love. The most humble people in this world should be people who trust in Christ because that could have never happened if God wouldn't have done something. And we're still at the other side. I don't want to pass over that. I'm going to skip over that as hard as it is. Okay, but what... So God chooses some and he doesn't choose others. First time I ever heard that, it was the first time as a Christian that I was ready to lose my salvation for just a moment, right? This guy said this to me, and I was so angry, right? Like, pissed. And I wanted to punch this guy. I think I did punch that guy. No, I'm just joking. 
he, he said this, and I'm like, ha, what? God, there's no way God could, there's no, there's no. And I'm just like, I got to read this. And I went back to my hotel. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, which why the heck I was in Nashville, Tennessee is a whole other story. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm in this hotel, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, I'm reading, and my emotions and my anger, I'm a pretty emotional guy to begin with. Um, I'm just getting more and more upset, and I'm reading. And you know what about the word election that killed me? I never saw it in the Bible ever until then, and then I just started seeing it everywhere. And I just got angry and angry and angry to the point I began to read God. God's word more and more, and I said, God, I don't, I, I don't know, but I want to submit to you. Because here's why, here's, here's why we can get angry. Here's why we have questions. Here's, here's why. When you hear that God chooses to save some and not others, your immediate response is, it's not fair, or it's not just. And the reality is, um, we have to understand what we mean by fair. If by fair, we mean God doesn't treat everybody the same, that's the truth. Because all we do have to read through scripture and we see God doesn't treat everybody the same. That he did choose Jacob and not Esau. Um, Well, you see, he did have Peter and not Judas. That God doesn't treat everybody the same. If by fairness, we mean that God doesn't give people what they're, um, that God should give everybody what they're owed, then we say, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want that type of fairness. Because what we've already talked through in Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3 is that every single person in this world is guilty because of their own sin and separated from God. And therefore, if God was to be fair or to be just completely, then his justice would be to enact um, his wrath and his judgment upon us because that would be just. And so if he gives us what we owe, we are all owed what we deserve. If he gives us what we deserve, we all are deserving of his separation, of his wrath, and of his judgment. We're going, okay, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't want to sign up for that. Um, but Paul answers the question that we all ask. It's interesting because um, Paul writes this, and he starts to go into a diatribe. And what a diatribe is, is essentially someone who writes something, and he, and he, um, he anticipates the questions that are going to be asked. And so, you know, years ago, this same question that we ask today are being asked. That's why I, so, I love the Bible, because it's like, as soon as we go, that's not fair, Paul says, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He asks the question. He knows it's coming. And he says, by no means. He says, absolutely not. No way in this, in God doing what he did and what he didn't do, shows that he's unjust. And the way that he explains it in verse 15 is unique in that he says, for he says to Moses, going back to Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And you go, okay, we're talking about justice um, and injustice, why does he go to mercy? Now, follow me on this. Here's why I think Paul does that. Paul is saying there's three options here. One never happens, and the other two happen. The first one is justice. Some will get justice. There are some people that because of our own sin and, and a lack of God's sovereign intervention, we will get what we deserve because of our sin. Not because of God, because of our sin. Paul said earlier in Romans 3, the wages of sin, that's something you work for. Wages are something you work for. The wages of sin is death, justice. You're going to get that. Some people get justice. And then he says, but then some get mercy. Some people don't get what they deserve. Um, That's what we want. Um, Some get justice, what they deserve. Others get mercy, what what they don't deserve. Nobody gets injustice. Nobody 
doesn't get what they deserve in the sense that no one gets something that is unjust or unjust on God's part. That's completely removed, and that's what Paul is saying, is that God is sovereign over his grace, that he gets to be God and we don't get to be God. Now, that's hard, and the reason why it's hard is many of us may say, um, and it's okay to say this, that I, I just don't like that. Um, it, it, it's okay to say that I wouldn't have, ch- I wouldn't have done that. It's okay as long as you know that you're not God. Um, it, it is okay to even say that I wouldn't prefer that. That's okay. As long as you realize you can't demand it your way. We have been raised in a particular culture to believe that we are self-governed, autonomous people, and therefore whatever we decide or choose can happen. And hear me, I do believe that God created us with moral and rational wills and the ability to choose. So volition, I do believe that. And, but I think we need to realize Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, what we talked about, says that that ability has been tainted by sin. And so we are so separated from God that we can choose just about anything in this world other than having the desire to reach up to a holy God. And so the only way that's going to happen is if a holy God reaches down to us, and he does that in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is he, God himself, has the ability to do what he wants. He is not obligated to give anybody mercy. So he could have saved all, but the Bible is very clear he didn't. He could have saved none, thankfully. That's not true either. But he decides in his own sovereign will, upstream, apart from us, we can't change it. It's all God, not us. He decided to save some. Who are those some? Who are those elect? Who are the quote-unquote Jacobs? We don't know. We're never supposed to know. God doesn't give me as a pastor like a, when you guys come in, do, 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 elect, elect. No, not at all. He gives us people. He gives us lives. He gives us circumstances. He gives us situations. But more importantly, he gives us Jesus. He gives us Jesus. The upstream part is what God is doing. It's his work, his sovereign movement. He gives us Jesus. You say, okay, well, what, what else, what else? Well, let me walk through and finish this and answer a few questions and then we'll close. Well, here's what he says in verse 16, just to make it clear, just in case we didn't get it. If we thought it was about us and not about God, he says, so then it depends not on human will. That's, that's the Greek word thelema or desire or effort. It's not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is God's. He is sovereign over these things. He chooses as he wills. And he goes to give an example again from Exodus, and he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. And you go, oh my gosh, there's another one. Pharaoh, he says, here's the, if you know the story of Pharaoh, Pharaoh continued to reject God, and reject God, and reject God, and God says, okay, this for, the, for this purpose, I raised you up. And he says, I have compassion and I harden. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When he talks about hardening, um, the Bible does not teach that God is actively hardening our hearts. And so it's called passive wrath. That's what Romans 1 was talking about. That it says that we have rejected God, rejected God, rejected God. That God says, okay, here, do what you want to do. And we said the worst thing that a holy God could do for us And in our moment, so downstream, not upstream, the worst thing he can do now in our life is allow us to be who we would want to be and do what we would want to do apart from his sovereign intervention. 
And he says, Pharaoh rejected and rejected and rebelled and rebelled. And God says, in his own sovereignty, he's even able to take the rebellious heart of someone who rebels against him and show his power. His power was not seen in him getting rid of Pharaoh. His power was seen that it was used in God's redemptive plan. That even though Pharaoh resisted, 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 all God did was say, do what you would do apart from me. Your heart is hard. You continue to rebel. And then God was able to use that to redeem his people. And the same way that when Jesus was given up for us, that God was able to allow the people in Jerusalem, the leaders, to do what they would do apart from his sovereign intervention, and in doing so, that they would crucify the Messiah, and God was able to get power because it was the means of which he would save people. God does not have to actively harden our hearts. What he has to actively do, and we have to pray for it, is for him to open up our hearts to see him. To know him. God is the one who has mercy. God is the one who gives mercy. God is the one who gives grace. Let me close with a few things here um, when Paul is talking here. Is, um, one, we can't be people who act like we know the elect. Some of you have grown up around this and you know this and you couldn't wait for Romans 9. You're like, yeah, I can't wait to argue with everybody in my RC. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Honestly, hear me. Go to another church. Don't, we're not here to like just... Arguing is okay for a moment, but if it's to beat someone down, especially when someone knows Jesus, it's pointless, pointless, it's pointless, all right? We, we, we understand God's word. People have a journey. Some people may never get to the point where they fully embrace that. Guys, that's okay. Fully embrace Jesus. Fully embrace Jesus. Just don't get to the part on the other side where you begin to say what God does and what God doesn't do that's not according to Scripture, right? Let's not do that. The other part is Paul, there's a, there's, there's a difference between election and salvation, most people in this conversation, they use election and salvation simultaneously, synonymously, and sometimes simultaneously, right? Synonymously, right? And so they say election and salvation is the same thing. It's not. Election, guys, is upstream. We have no part in this. Zero. Salvation is downstream. We have to preach the gospel. The same person who wrote this was the best evangelist we've ever seen. That he went places after places and he shared the gospel. He was a man of prayer. The next chapter, he talks about how are people ever supposed to know Jesus? Not because they're elected, he says. No, because you need to preach the gospel. How are people to ever know Jesus? Not because they're just elected, because you need to pray. How are people able to follow God? Because you yourself have to repent and believe in Jesus. He says there is responsibility. It is responsibility, and that's what salvation is, is God getting the thing started. God opened up your heart. It's God's grace. It's all about God. It's not about you. We are able to respond in faith because of what God did upstream, but we can't control this. We can't share the gospel with our friends. If you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never trusted in Jesus, the best thing I can tell you is not to worry about upstream, but you have to. You have to repent and believe in Jesus. Romans 10, the next chapter, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. What about if I wasn't elected? You don't know, and I don't know. Here's how we begin to find out. When you trust in Jesus, when you trust in his death on your part, when you trust in his resurrection as a promise that you too will be resurrected, when you trust that he has bled for you, that's the part that we play in, is we share 
and we pray, amen? Jesus has to be exalted in any conversation that God gets the power and the glory through the gospel of Jesus, not in our argument, not in our arguing, not in our theology, but in Jesus. We read the scriptures as the scriptures read because we love Jesus. We follow the Bible because we love Jesus. We share other people the gospel because we want them to see and know what Jesus has done on their behalf. Since we get this, we should be the deepest praying people, the most evangelistic people. Because you know what it means? God has tons of people out there. It's an innumerable, innumerable amount. We don't know. And that many of his children have not yet heard. And they have not heard because we haven't told them. So the purpose is not to get around the book and debate and argue. It's to say, if that is true, let's go find brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.